So take your Bibles, turn over to the book of Amos. Uh, Mika sends her love. She's up with the kids. Uh, they're having a good time. Find Ezekiel, Daniel, and then go three books after Daniel, and you're there to Amos. By the way, if anybody ever tells you to turn to a book in the Bible and you don't know where it is, there's this nice little thing in the front of your Bible called the Table of Contents. Don't be afraid to use it. <laughs> oh, it's fine. Um, we're going to look at tonight, um, getting into the text of chapter 1 and chapter 2, actually. There's a lot here. We're not going to get all the way all the way through our outline, but um, we will get through most of it. And so uh, tonight we're going to be looking at uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so I just want to start reading in chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read down through the first four verses, then we'll pray, and then we'll read a little couple portions of chapter uh, 1 and chapter 2. Uh, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. We talked all about that in the last couple weeks. And then in verse 2, it says, and he said, the Lord roars from Zion. That's where I said the roar of justice is what we're calling the series on this book. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. And then we're going to see this phrase over and over. And I said last week that I would explain this to you this week, and we will. Verse 3, it says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, which is in Syria, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead and threshing sledge of iron with threshing sledges of iron. Verse four, so I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, we pray that as we navigate through what seems just a very um, intense text of judgment upon the enemies of Israel, Lord, we can't help but think what's going on in the news and realize, wow, this is like prophecy being unfolded before our eyes, really, in, in a very real sense. And so we just pray tonight that you would open our eyes, help us to understand what's before us, and help us to realize your truth is just that. It is truth. And so we pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So tonight we're going to look at this revelation of the Lord's uh, coming judgment, not only against the enemies of Israel, but against Judah and Israel as well. We're going to get into that in whenever I teach next. I don't know what the schedule is, but on, on the next Wednesday sometime. Uh, so tonight, before we actually get into the text, I want, to, I want you to think that we're going on a journey. We're taking a trip, Okay. This way of introduction. So just imagine yourself taking a trip. And the nation we're going to be traveling to is the nation of Israel. And, of course, at this point, in the time of this writing of Amos, the nation of Israel is a divided kingdom. We have the northern kingdom, which is made up of ten tribes. And then we also have, uh, which is the kingdom of Israel, and then we have the southern kingdom made up of Judah and Benjamin, and, and it's called Judah because Judah is the larger tribe. So they just call it Judah. And so we're going to go into the northern kingdom of Israel 
into a particular city, and the city that we're going to be traveling to is called Bethel. Bethel, which means the house of God. That's what Bethel means. Uh, and it has a lot of uh, history in the scriptures. But at this moment in time, the time that Amos is prophesying and writing, uh, there's a palace of Jeroboam II there. And he has his own private uh, religious chapel. And there's a private priest that he has. His name is Amaziah. And so that's where we're going to go. And this is about 25 years before the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. Eventually it fell. And this is 25 years before that. It fell to the Assyrians. And so it's 25 years before that awful event where the Jews in the northern kingdom, they were taken into captivity. But at this moment in time, 25 years before that happens, guess what? The nation of Israel finds itself in a state of peace. A state of peace. Even more than that, it's a state of prosperity. Everybody is just doing very, very well. In fact, you could go as far as to say is the people are living in luxury. That's how it was in the time of Amos, in the time of Israel. And if that wasn't enough, there was also this interest in um, religion. There was a renewed, revived interest in religion, kind of a revival, you might say. And so as we journey there, there's a religious service that's about to start, and it's in the king's chapel, where Jeroboam II has this chapel. And Amaziah stands to his feet, and he is the one in charge, and he's about to begin the program as we begin a program in the, in the church, a service in the church. And then all of a sudden, that holy, sacred moment is disturbed. Something happens. There's a commotion outside of this chapel that they're gathering in. And when you hear this commotion, you think, what is going on? And you hear someone outside saying, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. You hear this voice, this boisterous voice. And it's a voice that is crying from outside the chapel. And so we run outside to see what's going on, obviously. And there's a man who cries even further, God is going to send judgment on the wicked nation of Israel. This is what he is saying. And as you rush out to see what's going on, you're thinking, well, who is this? Here we have this uninvited, rustic, hillbilly of a preacher. He's actually a farmer. He's uninvited. And he's a herdsman. He, he watches over sheep from Tekoa which is about 11 miles from the holy city of Jerusalem. This man's name, as we know, is Amos. It's Amos. And his name actually means burden, as we've shared with you in our introduction to the book. He's not a professional prophet. He doesn't look like a prophet. He's not the son of a prophet. He didn't attend any prophetic school. In fact, we read that verse last week, I think it was, in chapter 7 of Amos, verse 14, when Amos answered and said to Amaziah the priest, I was no prophet nor the prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. <laughs> so he hung around with animals all day and picked some fruit. In verse 15 it says, But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel, 
Verse 16, now therefore hear the word of the Lord. So here we run outside from this religious service that's about to start, and this guy is shouting at the top of his lungs, basically, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. God is going to send judgment on the wicked nation of Israel. And here we see this farmer guy standing there. You know, kind of like a clamp it. I don't know if he had a pitchfork, but but he was God's man. He was God's man. This is the man that God called to reach these people with God's message. And isn't that how God often works? Think about it. He often works this way. He chooses people who are just ordinary people who often find themselves in very common careers and jobs, and he chooses those ordinary people to do extraordinary things for his kingdom and for his glory. This is how God works. And you can see it throughout Scripture if you take time. There's just a couple examples. You remember Moses? Remember who he was what? He was out with the flock of sheep in the Midianite desert, and when God appeared to him in the burning bush and called him to be the deliverer of the people of Israel in bondage in Egypt, or you think of somebody like David, who was this young boy who was out feeding the flock and tending it when he was called to what? To be the king of Israel, for goodness sakes. And it's still the way God operates. This is the way God works. And I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged by that because I'm one of these ordinary guys that the scripture talks about. And we see this in, in, even in the New Testament when the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.27, but God chose what? What is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Verse 28 says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God uses ordinary people. And he goes on and he says, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Now, I don't know about where you're at tonight. I don't know how maybe insignificant you feel yourself to be. I don't know necessarily what kind of background that you have, occupational or whatever. But you know what? God can do something with your life. If you'll just put your life in his hands, and if you will listen to his voice, if you'll hear his call, and if you'll be obedient to what he calls you to do. Because it's not about what you have to offer God. That's never in the equation. That's irrelevant to God. It's all about what a great God of heaven can do with your willingness. It's not what you possess. It's, it's what you're willing to do for him. And so Amos this man isn't mentioned anywhere else. He's very insignificant, anywhere else in the Bible. Yet, he's, he's God's man. He's God's man for the job. And he has come to Bethel to preach the message of God. Judgment is coming to Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not a very popular message. You probably wouldn't hear that message coming out of Joel Olstein's lips. Uh, but why? Why is this judgment coming to Israel? We went over briefly last week but remember, they're, they're very wealthy. They're at peace, they're wealthy. And they were, 
in those days, they were really uh, thinking that wealth equated God's blessing. There's a lot of people that think that today. If, you're, if you have a lot of money, if you're rich, well, that's God's blessing in your life. And that was often the case in the Old Testament. But the children of Israel, unfortunately, didn't realize that God was blessing them in spite of their sin. He was blessing them in spite of their sin. Their, their wealth was, was actually in spite of their iniquity, in spite of the, the transgression against God that they had committed and continued to commit. Remember, I told you there's kind of a revival of sorts going on, and Amos comes along, and what he teaches us is that religion, for the most part, is very superficial. Religion is not the answer. That is not the answer. It's never been the answer. Because religion can be very shallow. Uh, you could say their religion was somewhat hypocritical. I think most people today would recognize religious people, for the most part, as hypocrites. They would call them hypocrites. How many times do you hear people, I'm not coming to church, you know, a bunch of hypocrites. You know, that's what they say. See, the reason why Amos had come at God's command to preach judgment against what we would say was, by all means, economically they were prospering. Uh, the religion was prospering. It was a successful state. Um, it was because their faith did not affect their lives. They had faith. But it, did, it had no effect. They were making money hand over fist. And they were making a lot of religious fervor, a lot of noise, a lot of religious energy was going on, and yet they were not worshiping God in what the Bible says is spirit and according to truth. They weren't worshiping in spirit and truth. In fact, with most of the people back then, money had become more important to them than worshiping God. Sound familiar? <laughs> if you look over at chapter 8 in Amos, chapter 8, we find this point clearly pointed out. Chapter 8, verse 5. It says, when will the new moon be over? What's he talking about? He's talking about a religious day. So they're questioning, when's this going to be over? That we may what? Sell grain, it says. In other words, you know, as if it was Sunday and the shops were, man, we just got to get over Sunday and so we can get back to work and make some more money. And he says, and the Sabbath that we offer wheat for sale. See, they were more interested in lining their pockets with money than they were in worshiping the Lord. That we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. So God's people here were getting rich, and they were getting rich with that wealth and you know that, that came sometimes in deceitful ways. But along with that wealth, and most people will tell you this, comes two things, complacency, often, and carnality. Complacency and carnality. And so here we're seeing a culture where the rich were getting richer, they were exploiting the poor, they weren't helping them, they were actually exploiting them, and the poor of the land had nobody to defend them at all. There was a lot of injustice 
going on. It was flourishing. And so this prophet of God, Amos, was sent by God to preach a revelation from the God of justice. If there's a theme here, it's, it's the God of justice. Think that. We have a just God. I don't know about you, but I thank God every time I think of that. Thank God we don't have a God who's unjust. Uh, he's, he's, he's a just God. Now, with Israel, unfortunately, the tragedy here, we said we're going to talk about some of the judgment that God put out against the nations that were enemies of Israel. The tragedy for Israel was that the sins of Israel and the sins of Judah were the same sins as the Gentile nations that were their enemies. You couldn't distinguish them. The sins of Israel were the same sins of the nations that were all around them. You couldn't distinguish the difference. Think of Amos in a courtroom, in God's courtroom, the God of justice, and, and Amos is coming in and, and basically what he's going to explain is he's going to explain the accused. He's going to say, here's who the accused are and here's why. This is what we're going to see. And first of all, he starts his message by looking around at all the nations around Israel and Judah, and there's six of them, and he announces six judgments on the enemies of, of Israel and Judah. And so Israel and Judah is probably feeling pretty good about this point, but he gets to them eventually. <laughs> and so he says there in verse 2, it says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. He depicts God as this uh, lion who is roaring in his wrath. If you've ever been to a zoo and you looked at a lion behind a cage, if you've ever had the opportunity for a lion to even yawn, it's pretty daunting. But when you hear them roar, it's pretty scary, even though they're behind a cage, because they can really roar when they want to. And when do lions mostly roar? They roar when they get hungry. They roar when they get hungry. And so we're going to look here tonight at a picture of the Lord as a lion that roars. And we see this in verse 2. We also see it in verse 8 of chapter 3. You get the same image. He says, the lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Have you ever thought of God as a, a, a roaring lion in his wrath? <laughs> like a ticked-off lion. I've never thought of God that way, frankly. So this word lion, Ariel, is, is used, the Hebrew word is used in the, in the Hebrew text, Ariel, and it means the lion of God, and it's used several times, 85 times in the Bible, actually. And in Isaiah 29.1, it's actually a name for Jerusalem. It says, ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city of where David encamped. Over in Joel, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice um, from Jerusalem. This roaring lion is used in the following ways. It's, it's used several ways throughout Scripture. We're just going to kind of breeze through this. But first of all, it's used of the wrath of a king. When a king had wrath that was going to be carried out in judgment, he was referred to as a lion. In Proverbs 19.12, it says a king's wrath is like the growling of a lion. It's also interesting to me in, in 1 Peter, 
5.8, what does it say the enemy does? Yeah, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a what? A roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Remember I said lions roar when they're hungry? So it's referred to the wrath of a king. It's referred to the devil. It's referred even to a mighty angel in Revelation 10, verses 1 to 3. It, it tells us uh, in verse two, 3 there, and called out with a loud voice like a roar, lion roaring. It's speaking of an angel. Or it's even referred to the Lord of hosts in Isaiah 31, 4. That verse says, for, the, for thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey. It's also used of the Lord in the, in the sense of coming judgment. In the book of Hosea, it says in verse 5 of chapter 14, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. Hosea chapter 11, verse 10, they shall go after uh, the Lord. He will roar like a lion. You see it over and over. 13, 7 to 8, Hosea, he says, So I am to them like a lion. I will devour them like a lion. And then we see it here in Amos. It's also used of the Messiah in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. It says, And one of the elders said, John wrote this, said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of what? The tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So this roaring lion is referred to many times in Scripture. And here it's referring to God's judgment in, in the book of Amos. Uh, it says here in verse 2, this roaring comes out of Zion or Jerusalem and utters his voice from, um, from uh, Jerusalem. And if you read these two verses kind of, of, of correctly here, the Lord will roar from Zion. So it's, it's defending, you could say. It's operating in behalf of the children of Israel. And God is speaking now against the nations who thought that they could get away with hurting or with harming or with attacking Israel. They thought, ah, oh, that's no problem. We're going to get away with this. And there are many nations even today, we're seeing it lived out in the news, who think that they can attack Israel, that they can cause harm to Israel, God's people, and they will not suffer the vengeance of God. The Abrahamic covenant said very clearly, we read this on Sunday, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. And that is still true today. You know, we don't have to worry about Israel. God will take care of Israel. We have to worry about the other nations of the world. <laughs> we have to worry about our own nation. We have to worry about our own president. We have to worry about our own politicians. Are they going to continue to support Israel? Because if they don't, this verse holds true. I will bless those who bless Israel. I will curse those who curse you. I want to be on the side of blessing. I don't know about you, but I want to be on the side of blessing. And so this roaring comes out of Zion, Jerusalem. It also, the results speak of this coming judgment. Look at what it says there. It says the pastures, back to um, Amos uh, chapter 1, the pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. What is he saying? He's saying the results are so powerful. He uses this vivid imagery here that Israelis would immediately identify with. 
Most of us are not Israeli, so we don't identify with it. So I need to explain it to you. It says there, the shepherds shall mourn. Uh, I remember when we were in Israel, there was a gentleman who was, we saw a shepherd with some sheep out on the field or whatever, and he was just making some comments. And he said, yeah, they're pretty rough guys. They're, they're not like touchy-feely kind of guys. And he made this comment. You know, as a matter of fact, I've never seen a shepherd cry, <laughs> ever. And that's the kind of hardened people they were. They were just very hard, just emotionless almost. And so this is the point. He's saying here, the pastures of the shepherds mourn. The point is that this, there's going to be such an unusual devastation. There's going to be such an unusual punishment and anger and wrath from God that even the shepherds will mourn like the one who mourns over the loss of a loved one. It's also interesting there in verse 2, it says that Carmel will wither. Uh, this is something else that Israelis will identify right away with. In Isaiah 35.2, here's what it says. It says, It shall blossom abundantly, abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, and the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. When we were over in Israel, we had the opportunity to go up to the top of Mount Carmel, and David Hawking told us the story of Elijah. Really cool. They have a, a on top there, they have a uh, statue <laughs> put there of Elijah. But when you're up there and you look down, um, you know, you can get all these pictures taken. But Carmel is really a picture of, you could say, agricultural productivity in Israel. It's, a it's like going up to Napa. It's just beautiful. You know, we're out to the Central Valley where they're growing everything. Uh, they had... They have beautiful vineyards over there. They have uh, world-famous wines come out of Carmel. They're shipped all over the world. And the whole area is just, just beautiful. And you can overlook the whole valley. And when you're up there, you're, you hear people say, oh, that's the Valley of Armageddon. It's, it's actually the, the, the Valley of es Estrelan, uh, the, the Valley of Jeriel. Is, is, it's also referred to that. And you can look all the way down towards out into the, the Jordan River. It's very beautiful. And so when you say here in the text, the top of Carmel shall wither, an Israeli would go, well, that would never happen. What are you talking about? I mean, to the Jewish mind, if that were ever to happen, that's the end. Because if Carmel's withered, everything else is pretty much gone. That's, that's, what, that's what that text is really implying. And so it's a very vivid graphic illustration of God's anger toward anyone who tries to hurt his people. And I find that very interesting in light of what's going on in the news, don't you? God is roaring like a lion today. He really is. He's roaring against the Western world that lives in relative peace. The Western world that is really up to its neck in capitalism and wealthy, prosperous. I mean, we live in luxury compared to most of the world. God is, is roaring at wealthy people. And much of that, those people have enough religion to drown themselves. <laughs> 
He's roaring at them. He's roaring at people who even take the name of Christ, who have religion, but their faith does not affect their lives. It doesn't make any difference in the communities in which they live. He's roaring against a people for whom making money has become more important than worshiping God. This is the roar of God. This is the God of justice. He's roaring. Can you hear him? I hope you can. Because his roar is to get the attention of the nations of the modern world. He's basically shouting heads up, all hands on deck. And he's doing it just like he did in the nations around Israel back in Amos' day. But guess what? No one was listening. No one was listening to the roar of God. I pray tonight you can hear him. You can identify with his roar. Because it says there in verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. That's very significant. Think about it. Where is Amos? Where did I say Amos was? Where did we go on our trip? We went to where? Bethel. Well, where's Bethel? That's up north. That's in Israel. That's where Bethel is. Where's Jerusalem? Well, that's down. That's down in the south. That's in Judah. So what's Amos saying here? He's saying this. Though Israel is the northern kingdom, and even though they had established their own way of religion, remember, they're a divided nation at this time, they had their own religious centers, and you, know, you see them in Scripture, places like Dan, Bethel, Gilgal, these are all places where they decided to worship. And they had come up with their own approach to God. They devised their own way of worshiping God. And so the prophet Amos comes along and he's reminding these people, hello, God has not changed. God has not changed. You may change your location. You may change the inclinations as to how you felt your worship should go up to God. But guess what? God has not changed. That's why he's saying he's still roaring from Jerusalem. He's not going to change his plan just because you're up north. I mean, that's an incredible message for the world in which we live today. Because what do you hear? I don't know about you, but I hear you know, ministries all the time. I hear pastors all the time. Well, we have to change. We have to be culturally relevant. We've we got to make sure that we're keeping up with... God does not change. Now, I'm not saying we should be some old fuddy-duddies that, you know, dress like something out of the 20s or something. However, it's all cyclical, so it all comes back anyway. So just keep your clothes. Don't ever throw them away. I try to convince my wife of that, but it doesn't work. But I believe God would be reminding the nations around this world of ours, just like he was back in Amos' day, that you know what? All roads do not lead to God, my friends. And that's a great pressure upon us as a society, really, in the 21st you know, century uh, to accept that teaching. It comes from all angles. You know, you don't have to be so narrow-minded. All roads lead to God. No, they don't. And just because we live in a pluralistic society that's politically correct, Guess what? God is still roaring. And he's still roaring from Jerusalem. And guess what? This holy God, this God of justice, he is still a jealous God. 
who will have no other gods before him. God has not changed. That's the first commandment. That's even New Testament teaching, 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is what? One God. And there is one mediator between God and man. Who? The man, Jesus Christ. The man, Christ Jesus. Exactly. Well, so Amos begins each of these indictments against these six enemies we're going to see here, uh, talking about the punishment of Israel's enemies. He, he begins with the same words. So it's very easy. You can actually go through and just find these words and say, oh, that's number one, that's number two. Wherever you see, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, that starts a judgment. And there's six of them there, and then there's two more on Judah and Israel. And so if you look at it, you can see this in verse 3 of chapter 1. What's it say? And thus says the Lord, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Now, he puts in a name of each nation in there, and we'll go over those. But that's that strange expression that I was telling you about, right? For three transgressions and for four. What does that mean? It's just kind of weird. It's a weird way to say something. Why not just say for four? Why did it say three and then four? I mean, it doesn't make any sense in our English. And, and the reason it doesn't is because it's really a Hebrew idiom. It's an expression of language that doesn't really equate exactly the way we look at it. It's only used here in Amos to refer to these six nations um, that were the enemies of Israel. And it's used also of the southern kingdom, Judah, and also of the northern kingdom. But for three transgressions and for four, it's a Jewish idiom, and what it means is this. The ascending number in the idiom means this, you know, three and then four, he says. It, it basically means this, that a complete count has been made, and we are absolutely, totally, completely confident about the result. There's no wiggle room here. This is done. It's over. That's basically what it means. For three transgressions and for four. And so what Amos is, is not saying here, he's not saying this. He's not saying that each of these nations committed three or four transgressions. That has, that's not what this point is. That's not what he's saying that literally. They did commit transgressions, but he's not keeping track of them. He's not saying, oh, they committed three transgressions. Oh, wait, no, it was four. No, it just means that these number of transgressions this indefinite number of transgressions that had finally come to an end. Uh, the Bible teaches that before God, the nations, it uses this terminology, the nations have a cup of wrath. Have you ever seen that in scriptures? And that the wrath comes to overflowing. In other words, the, the cup is there and the wrath is filling up, it's filling up, it's filling up, and then it begins to overflow. The wrath of God begins to overflow. And that's when God executes judgment. That's, that's the idea. I mean, don't you praise God that he's long-suffering? <laughs> but this expression teaches us, yeah, God is patient, God is long-suffering, but this expression teaches us that even his patience comes to an end at some point. This is very important to understand. 
I mean, to try God's patience, if you were to sit here tonight and say, well, I could get away with this a little longer, I could do this, I could do that, what are you doing? You're trying God's patience, which means what? You're tempting God. You're tempting God. It's like, I don't know if you ever played any... Uh, uh, the, the game where you, you, everybody chases you, you got the ball, and then they tackle you, and then somebody else takes it and runs. No, it's not football, but it, yeah, it's just a crazy game. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of the bad term that we used to call it, but you know, smear the, but we're not going to use that. So, uh, you know, you had one guy with a ball, and everybody was chasing him. And I remember one guy who was really fast, and he'd just taunt us. Come on, come on, come on. He'd wait, he'd wait, and we'd get real close. Then he'd just, boom, he's just so fast. This is what, when you're, when you're tempting God, when you're trying his patience, it's like you're saying, okay, God, come on, come on. I'm going to continue in this sin. I'm going to continue to do this. I hope and I pray that there's no one here tonight who is not a Christian and you've heard the gospel many, many times. I pray that's not true. Because what are you doing? You're trying the patience of God. When you hear the gospel and you say, yeah, that rings true. Am I a sinner? Yeah, I'm a sinner. Has God provided for my sin? Yep, he's, he's given Christ. Do I believe? Yeah, I believe in Christ. But, I don't know. I, I'll wait till I'm older. I don't want God to ruin my party. What are you doing? You're tempting God. You're tempting God. And really, what you're doing by that mindset, you're inviting God's judgment into your life. Why you would do that, who knows? But you're inviting God's judgment. You're saying, yep, I know you're the way. I know you provided salvation through Christ and everything, but, you know, you're inviting God's judgment. Why do that? It's a free gift. Salvation is something you don't work for. He says here, it's for the taking. Come to me, obey the gospel. Look to Jesus, look to Christ. This is what he wants us to do. So we see here, not just the picture of this lion roaring, but we also see, and we'll just get into some of these tonight, the punishment of Israel's enemies. The punishment of Israel's enemies. We're not going to read all of this, but... Uh, there's a lot of stuff in here, and I really, I found myself last week and Monday, actually, bogged down to the point where, I mean, on my little iPad, I probably had 100 pages of stuff, and I'm like, I, I can't, there's no way I can share all this stuff, because <laughs> it wasn't really even interesting to me, <laughs> so I thought, I don't want to put people to sleep, but some of it is important, but we'll, we'll highlight some of the things here. But just know that each one of these nations has a history, okay? And you can, you can look that up, and you can go back and figure all that out. And so tonight, we're just going to do a brief overview of some of these enemies and some of the principles, and then we'll get out of here. So the punishment of Israel's enemies. This section goes all the way from verse 3 all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. So this is the text that's before us. And you can see, once again, in the text, whenever it says, thus says the Lord, look at verse 3, for the three transgressions of who? Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with the threshing 
sledges of iron. So that's the first enemy that's going to hear from Amos about the judgment of God. And what does he accuse them of? He accused them of acting very, very cruel in war, using iron to torture people. He pronounces it there. He uses, he, he implies that they, they use these iron instruments to, to unnecessarily treat people in war. That's a very practical thing today, is it not? I mean, if Israel wanted to, they could just bomb Gaza with an atomic weapon, <laughs> blow the whole place up. But that wouldn't be right. You know, it wouldn't be right. So what do they have to do? They have to painstakingly go through all the rubble. They've got to find these terrorists with the face of the earth from the terrorists and hopefully protect some civilians when they're going. Doing it. It's very difficult, very difficult. And then you have other nations piping in, trying to tie their hands. And, you know, you saw what happened with the hospital. Immediately, people blame Israel. Israel would not do that intentionally. They, do things like that happen in war? Yes. Our own nation has done that. You know, we, it, it's, we've made mistakes, okay? But this was not Israel. And everybody knows it's not Israel. But that doesn't stop the people rioting in Chicago and in New York City and in the halls of Congress blaming Israel for it when it's, it's simply not true. That would be like, and, and some people did, <laughs> when those terrorists flew those planes into the Twin Towers in New York City, and immediately they knew who it was. They knew, the intelligence knew who it was. But then all of a sudden you started to hear certain people saying, oh no, you know, the United States did this. It's like crazy, right? I mean, it's just crazy. Israel's not perfect. But they're not going to go out of their way to bomb a hospital with innocent civilians in it. Why? Because they have a sense of morality. They have a sense of morality. Some of the enemies of Israel, unfortunately, left their morality out in the field somewhere because they don't have any. When you butcher a little baby, burn them, tie them together with steel wire, put them in a room and put gasoline on them and light them and watch them burn and cheer that, that's sick. That is disgusting. You can't understand that. So he, he unleashes his punishment on Damascus because of the cruelty that they were taking out on their enemies, this, this using these iron weapons, these iron instruments. We don't know exactly what it was. But then it goes down to verse 6. And he says, we, he carries out a judgment on each one, and we'll, we'll look at that in the future. But verse 6 is the next nation, and it's the punishment for Gaza. He accuses them of the sin of slavery. He speaks to Gaza in verses 6 to 8. And Gaza, basically, Philistia, it's the Philistines, that's who he's speaking of here. And he condemns them for the sin of slavery. He says, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod, and him who holds a scepter from Ashkelon, I will turn my hand against Ekron 
and the, the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. This is the Lord speaking. And like I said, it, it's not a matter of this uh, being optional. There's no turning this around at this point. God's cup of wrath is full. And then he moves on there in verses 9 to 10, and it talks about the punishment for Tyre. He accuses them of cruelty, of, of, of slavery, similar. And he speaks to them in verses 9 to 10. Look, at he says, thus says the Lord, there's that phrase, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, in other words, I'm done, this is it, I will not revoke the punishment. There's, no, there's not going to be any turning this around because they delivered up a whole people to Edom, another case of slavery, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Then he moves on, verses 11 and 12, to punishment on Edom. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke my punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. So what was their, their problem here? It, their problem was they didn't show any pity on anybody. They, they maintained constant hatred. He accuses them of, of just maintaining constant hatred. This describes some of the modern-day enemies of Israel. When you do some of the horrible things that we've seen them do, unprovoked, unprovoked, This completely makes sense. And then in verses 13 to 15, another one, thus says the Lord. He says, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Because they ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with the tempest in the day of whirlwind. And their king shall go in exile, and he and his prisons, uh, princes together, says the Lord. So Ammon, he accuses them of bitter cruelty. I mean, I think we would all agree cutting open a, a woman, pregnant woman, is, is cruel. <laughs> it's horrible. And selfish greed he condemns them for that. And then we move into verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. There's another one, thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Moab, the Moabites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. He, he, he basically <laughs> accuses the Moabs of being very cruel to their enemy, the Edomites. And the Edomites were not nice people. Okay, they, they were an enemy too of Israel. And he says, so I will send a fire on, upon Moab and it shall deliver the strongholds, uh, strongholds of Kiriath and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet and I will cut off the ruler from its midst and will kill all of its princes with him, says the Lord. So he judges Moab, the Moabites, because they were cruel against the Edomites, who were also cruel. So what is going on here? It's very interesting. I mean, he's already judged the Edomites for their cruelty, 
And, you know, I mean, we would say today, well, what? Two wrongs don't make a right, right? That, that's basically what, 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 what the deal is here. This is an incredible lesson. The Edomites were guilty of cruelty, but that did not legitimize crimes against their, uh, against them from the Moabites. And, and what is the message here that, that Amos is communicating over and over as these people are judged? You know what he's communicating? He's, he's basically telling us God is a God of what? Justice. God is a just God. You're not going to thwart the justice of God. He is just, he is impartial, and he will judge iniquity. He has to. Because of who he is. So is it frustrating to watch things? But you know what? You know, is it frustrating to see Christian organizations being, being attacked and things like that? Definitely. But you know what? God's not missing this. He's keeping things account. He knows exactly what's going to happen and when. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to verse 15 of chapter 3, a pretty significant text, he talks about the people of God who are punished. So we, we looked at the, the enemies of God and the punishment that God pronounced against them through Amos, but then in chapter uh, 6, or, or chapter 4 of chapter 2, verse 4 of chapter 2, he starts to talk about the punishment against Judah. And he accuses them of rejecting God's law. This was something that was given to them, God's law. And he, he judges them for rejecting it, not adhering to it, not obeying it. And then, and then that's in verses 4 and 5. There it is. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, this is his own people, remember. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. The southern kingdom is going to be judged. And then in verse 6, there it is again, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, this is the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because Look, at, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. And he goes on. We don't have time to read all this. We'll go into this next time when we're going to be talking about the specific sins that God is judging here. But he accuses Israel of many sins. Now, before we look at this pronouncement to Israel, which we're probably not going to get to tonight. I just want us to look at these couple principles, hopefully that we can glean from what we've already looked at. And then we'll close. The first principle here is the God of justice takes note of what's going on in this world. We have a God who is just, and he knows exactly what's going on. Nothing is flying under the radar. And so before pronouncing these judgments on Judah and Israel... Amos pronounces judgment on the six Gentile nations. Now, please remember, these Gentile nations, did they have God's law? No. They didn't have it. Um, did they have the Ten Commandments? You could put it that way. No. 
first five books of the Bible? No. He didn't give them to Gentile nations. They didn't have it. He gave it to Israel. He gave it to Judah. He gave it to his people, his covenant people. And yet, <laughs> there's still an expectation by God that these nations of the world would be accountable for their sins against humanity. Even though they didn't have the law of God, they were still accountable. See, sometimes we think we're forgiven. You know, we think that, you know, being, a, being Christian and, and God forgives all of our sins and, and, and thinking sometimes the Old Testament, God was only interested in Israel and Judah. He was only interested in his people. These other people were just, you know, casualties of war. It didn't, they, he didn't care about them. That's not really true. In verse 4, or verse 2 of chapter 4, he indicts Judah for disregarding his law. In chapter 2, verses 9 to 12, he indicts Israel um, for, for, indicting, or for, for disregarding his love of them, his covenant love for Israel. But God is the God of all flesh. And, and so even though these Gentile nations all around Israel and Judah... Uh, God was indicting them for their sin, and rightfully so, for their breaking of his law. Even though they didn't have these ten stone commandments, they didn't have the ten commandments, God had written the requirements and the expectations of his law where? On their hearts. Turn over to, to, to Romans, because this speaks to this. In the New Testament, Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 2, Look at verse 11. Because this is good for us to understand. Because sometimes we think, oh, well, the, you know, those people, you know, they don't really matter to God. Well, yeah, they do. Everybody matters to God. In verse 11, chapter 2, Paul says this, for God, what, shows no partiality. There's no partiality with God. Verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law, look, look will also perish without the law. You don't get a pass. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but what? The doers of the law who will be justified. See, you can hear God's law all day long. Israel had God's law. Judah had God's law. What did they do? They didn't listen to it. They didn't observe it. They didn't do it. Therefore, they weren't justified. Verse 14, for when Gentiles, he explains it, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. What do you mean? Well, what's the law say? Do not murder. Okay, I can go to any neighbor here, around here, whether they're a Christian or not, whatever the religion is, and walk up and say, hey, do you think if I murdered you right now, that would be wrong? I'd probably say 100% of them would say, well, yeah, that would not be good. That wouldn't be a good, a good thing to do. Right? Do they have God's law? No. But it's written in their hearts. It says, by nature they do what the law requires, even though they don't have the law. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have a law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. 
See, there's people all around us in the world who are unconverted. They don't know God. They aren't God's people. They know instinctively not just how to do bad, but they also know how to do good. Instinctively. Now, they do more bad than good, usually, but they know. They know because God has given them a conscience. God has given them that law that's written on their hearts of the inner man, and therefore all the nations of the world need to pay attention and know that God is taking note of all that is done, of everything that is committed, both nationally as countries and also individuals. We don't, get a, we don't get a pass here. We need to know that God is taking note of how we have broken his law. I mean, it's, it's a good message nationally for countries, especially in our day and age, that have horrible human rights, places like China, um, and you have Western nations cozying up to them because maybe they can get something from them or other nations and totalitarian states that are guilty of things like ethnic cleansing, genocide, state-sponsored terrorism. States that are guilty of war crimes upon soldiers, uh, forces, civilians. We see it. It's, it's right in the news. Some nations have what they call caste system, so India is one of those nations. A lot of nations have institutionalized races, secretari uh, secretarianism, or discrimination, sectarianism, sorry, or discrimination, a general abuse of political power. We see it everywhere, and we are not <laughs> absolved from that. I mean, we live in a, a pretty free society here in America, so far. But what do we see? We see the murder of innocents in abortion, unborn babies being slaughtered, mass destruction of human embryos. And my point is, God's taking note of this. He's not saying, oh, that doesn't matter. <laughs> They're not Christians. They didn't know any better. No, he's not. He's holding them account, and he will hold them account. It did not bypass God. And what is the case nationally is really the case individually. We all have a conscience, and that conscience intuitively tells you what is wrong. You know what is wrong. You know what is right. It warns you about wrong. It warns you about immoral personal behavior. And all I'm saying is if you disregard it, if you turn that conscience off, read Romans 1 and see what happens. It's not, not pretty. But God takes note, and you will answer to God one day for that. That's a, it's a wonderful lesson for us. Because not only what goes on in our nations, but what goes on in our homes and in our own personal lives. So the God of justice takes note of what is going on in the world. Secondly, this God of justice holds nations accountable. I love this. He holds them accountable. He's not turning a blind eye. There's going to be kings, presidents, prime ministers, military generals, politicians, chancellors, all of the above. They will all be accountable to the God of heaven. 
You read in the book of Genesis that Abraham could not enter into the promised land. It says this at that point because it says this, the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. That Remember that I talked about that cup of wrath? That cup of wrath that was being stored up for the Gentile race was not full. And what did God? God holds nations accountable to this very day. And I was asking myself this week, I thought, wow, I wonder what the limit for our nation is. What's the limit of iniquity? What's the cup of wrath for our nation? Is it, is it done? Is it overflowing? Could we add our nation to the list? What is the quota for the United States of America? The quota of sin before God will come in judgment. Or has it already started? I believe it has. And then thirdly, not only the God of justice takes note of what's going on, the God of justice holds nations accountable. Thirdly, the God of justice judges nations when it pleases him. When it pleases him. See, it's not on our timetable. Each time he brings an indictment to the accused here, the nations that we saw, he repeats this statement. I will not revoke, I will not what? Turn away my punishment. Not going to happen. I will send fire, he says. The Bible describes God as a consuming fire. That's even in the New Testament, by the way. It's not just Old Testament stuff. And you know what? We praise God for the gospel. We praise God for the Bible that we have. And as New Testament believers, we live in the new covenant and we're partakers of that covenant and we celebrate the grace of God. We're evangelical Bible believers and we celebrate the cross. We celebrate the shed blood of Christ. We celebrate the redemption and justification through the sacrifice of our sins, for, uh, for, for, of Christ for our sins. And it's, says that it puts our sins as far as the east is from the west. It buries them in the sea of God's forgetfulness. That's why we celebrate. That's why we sang even tonight. We're celebrating the fact that we serve a risen Savior. He rose on the third day. He rose to justify us in all whosoever will freely believe in his name. Obey the gospel. That's all great. That's all true. But please hear me. God's justice and holiness is still intact. God has not ceased to be judged or to be just. And when he revealed himself to Moses in, in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 8, this is how he revealed his person. It says in verse 6, The Lord passed before him, speaking of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But listen, it doesn't stop there. But, it says, who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And this is how Moses react 
his reaction to that revelation in Exodus 34, verse 8, it says, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth. And what did he do? He worshipped. He worshipped. I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but modern day um, evangelicalism today has really seen a revival in what we call universalism. It's all over the place. That everybody's going to be saved. Everybody in the end will be saved because God is just too loving. He would not send anyone to hell. And though we celebrate the grace of God, we celebrate his forgiveness. And if you're not converted, you can be by simply obeying the gospel, by turning to Christ, by admitting your own sinfulness before a holy God and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. I need to be saved from my sin. He'll do that tonight. But universalism says, well, everyone will eventually be saved. Doesn't matter if you repent. Doesn't matter if you give your life to God or Christ or whoever. That's unbiblical view of what, who God is. Because God is just. God is just. And if Amos is teaching anything, it's that. He's teaching the justice of God. He's saying, you know what? There's a roar of justice that God is proclaiming around the world today. And we look at these nations that were the enemies of Israel and we go, yeah, well, they got what they deserved. You know what? Our, guilty is just, our nation is just as guilty of many of the crimes that these nations were guilty of. If I were to ask you tonight, what is our list of national sins? Greed? Excess in every sense. Food, sex, drugs, drink, everything. The exploitation of the vulnerable. Sexual permissiveness on every hand. And it's even celebrated. And you could go on and on. We don't have time to do that. But then he starts in on Judah and Israel. I mean, it must have pleased the Israels in Bethel as they're listening to Amos condemning these filthy Gentile nations and the, the southerners even of Judah. <laughs> they were probably cheering them on. Yeah, they get what they deserve, man. That's good, that's good. But then he began to preach about what? The sins of Israel. And he began to say, you know what? These sins are the same as the sins of the other nations and the same as the sins of Judah. And so the eighth judgment, you see there in verse 6, is reserved for Israel. Thus says the Lord, for three transgression of Israel and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. See, our God is a just God. These were his people. But they don't get a pass. Just like we don't get a pass. Just because we're a Christian and all of our sins are forgiven doesn't mean we get to go out and live however we want and spurn God's law, and live unjustly before a just God, the Bible says he will discipline us. You're just inviting his discipline. And if you don't know Christ, you're inviting his judgment. See, when our God finds the same sins willfully present in his people, he judges them. He disciplines them. 
And you know what? I would even go as far as to say is God is more severe on his own people. He's more severe on Israel and Judah. Why? Because they had his word. They had the prophets. They had that privileged position. And guess what? Privilege brings what? Responsibility. Yeah, we've been saved by his grace. That's a privileged position. Are we living up to our responsibility? As individuals, as a church, as a nation. God has blessed this nation incredibly. But I think the cup of wrath is almost full if it's not already full. Because judgment is clearly near. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. Lord, I pray that you would help us to really take what we've heard tonight. Not easy things to hear. We'd much rather hear about your love and your grace and your mercy and how wonderful heaven will be. But Lord, judgment is something that you can't just tear away from God because you're a holy God and you're a just God. And there, will, there are times when judgment has to fall. And Lord, we pray that you would be merciful, that you would even be gracious to our own people, our own country. We pray that you would even be gracious to Israel in their state of unbelief. And Lord, we know that your promises are true. We know that you will protect Israel. But Lord, I pray that through this protection, through this time of war, through all the tragedy that they are sensing, Lord, that their hearts would be turned to you, that they would be turned to the Savior, that they would look upon the one that they pierced and realize, wow, this, this is where we need to go. There's going to come a day when the military won't be able to help them. There's come a day when politics definitely won't help them. And all the aid in the world will not help them. And it'll look like they're going to get eradicated from the face of the earth. And that's when you will step in and, and preserve your people. But until that day, I pray that you would be gracious, that you would be merciful. Lord, I pray for us as believers that we would live with a sense of compassion and pity and empathy on the people that live around us and not just go around pronouncing righteous judges, righteous justice, judgment off our religious noses, but Lord, that we would really be loving and caring and kind and be willing to share the gospel with those who have yet to believe. Help us not to hold them to a standard that they can't attain to. I hear so many Christians complaining about non-Christians and their behavior. Well, how do you expect them to behave? And so, Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to them, that you would bring them to a point of repentance. And, Father, that you would use us as agents of change in their lives as they see our lives, as we live for Christ, as we preach the gospel, as we share how you have affected change in our lives, Lord, that you would do that work in their hearts. And, Lord, whether it's people in our school, fellow students, whether it's people in our work, fellow employees, or people in our own family, Lord, we pray that they would be turned to you and that their hearts would be softened to the things of the gospel and they would realize their need of a Savior. Pray that you'd keep us safe the rest of the week and we pray that you would just continue to bless us. Bless our conversation now. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.